Open your Bible to the book of Job, to the book of Job, and if you would stand to your feet, that would be great. I would strongly suggest that you take advantage of your microchurch or a microchurch, if you're not in one already, to process the things that we're about to cover in this series. This series that's going to be on the book of Job for the whole month of November. Uh, this is an intense book. This is, frankly, a uh, mysterious book in a lot of accounts, in a lot of ways. Uh, but I got to tell you, one of the, even part of the ob- objective of Greenhouse is we're trying to plant green microchurches in all 67 counties of the state of Florida. By the way, if you're in another county, we would sure I want to know about it. If you consistently are part of Greenhouse and you're in another county, I have found that if somebody goes to Sunday morning church there's a really good chance they may never become a disciple. I have never seen somebody get in a green, healthy microchurch that does not grow as a disciple. Now, I'm not saying you can't be a disciple. I'm just saying there's something about that experience. And this series kind of proves it because I don't know how you process what we're about to cover in suffering like you can do when you're with people that love you. So Job We're going to start in chapter 2. We'll go back to chapter 1 in a minute. But Job chapter 2, starting in verse 4, if you're ready, say, I think so. Job 2, 4. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery, scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. God help. Reveal and meet us even right now with the bread of your presence. Someone today needs your presence. And even before I go into preaching this word, I ask that the miraculous presence of the spirit of the living God would come upon everyone that's listening right now. I do not want to make light of the suffering that some people have walked into this room or tuned in to this broadcast and the pain that they feel right now. I ask for the bread of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I was in Israel, in the city of Tel Aviv, several years ago, and I was striking up a conversation with a man that I was trying to talk to him about the Messiah, Jesus, honoring the faith that I was assuming that he had, being a Jewish man. And as we began to get into the conversation, we got to the subject of the Holocaust, and the millions of Jews that lost their lives. The executioners killed for nothing, it was clear. The, the victims died for nothing. Auschwitz was a place where the sacrifices and the brutality was, as this guy would say, without point. If the suffering of one person has any meaning, meaning the suffering of six million surely has none, was the idea. He looked at me and he said, you know, I I hear you talking about a God, but what do you do with suffering like that that makes no sense whatsoever? And there's many of us in this room that are maybe not at the Auschwitz level, but many of us in this room that would look at our own lives and, and, and say, God, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, maybe some of you, there, there are some of you that I've spoken to that have, that have gotten in, in car accidents that you, that you do not understand, and it's, 
It's a dozen years later, and the chronic pain reminds you every day of an accident. Some of us have lost our homes. There are some of you that have declared bankruptcy. There are some of you that have gone through brutal divorces that make no sense. You do not understand how it all unraveled. How did that happen? There's some of you that have known, like we're going to find out in Job's life, the death of a loved one or a child. When I was speaking to this man in, in Tel Aviv, he finally looks at me and says, hey, I, I, I realize you're trying to talk to me about uh, taking my Jewish faith and completing it with Jesus the Messiah. You need to back up a few steps because not only do I not believe in your Jesus? I do not believe in God. How could there be a God who allows suffering like this in the world? And if there is a God that allows suffering like this in the world, I don't have any part of him. It's all philosophical, this question of suffering, until it happens to you. We do not want stock answers, which is what makes the book of Job, frankly, as relevant as ever. It's the oldest book of the Bible. It's one of the oldest books that we know of. It's the very most ancient book. It predates Genesis and Exodus being written. It's the oldest book written of this non-Jewish Gentile, probably in the patriarchal times, a man named Job, a man whose name has become a byword for suffering itself. None of you ever tell me when you get pregnant, when you're thinking of a name, I'm thinking of naming my boy, Job. No one says that. It's the most ancient book in the Bible, and yet it's probably the greatest book in all of human history for the subject of suffering. No entendemos sufrimiento. There's something about it. We're like, what do we do with suffering? There's something about this book that offers no easy explanations. It gets into our grill because it goes in through the back door. It doesn't give us like a 15-minute TED Talk. I mean, this book will mess with your mind if you read it. There is, there is mystery and there are unanswered questions. And I'm not going to pretend to be able to answer all of our questions, especially when we come to, to, to the real-life world that makes us ask the question, why? I'm not sure when you last asked that question. Why, why do good people suffer? Why do, and missionary Sam was here, why do little four-year-olds get, get sold into slavery? Now, there are religions that would say, well, they're, 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 the reason why is it's karma. They're suffering for the, their, their sins of another, of another life or something like that. I, I get that, but, I'm, but Job doesn't go there. That's not what Job does. In fact, Job rebukes people that talk like that. Job is going to teach us something, and, and the, the one thought I'm going to try to get you to come out of with before we're done today is th there's this one line which is going to be somewhat generic. I'm going to try to put some teeth on it before we're done, but this is what I'm going to want you to really do today. This is what I'm going to want you to know today. When you're troubled with things that you do not understand, I'm going to invite you to hold tight to what you do understand. When you're troubled or tormented or struggling or afflicted with the things that you don't understand. We get it when you're dying at age 80 because you smoked your whole life and they say you have lung cancer. People feel bad, but we all get it. We don't get it when we don't get it. We don't get it when there seems to be an asymmetrical relationship between the, the suffering of the real world and us or the apparent nature of God and what's going on in the world that God made. When we're troubled with the things that we do not understand, I'm going to challenge us to hold tight to what we do. I'm going to dare you today to use the Bible to interpret the Bible because this book of Job is troubling. This is a troubling book. So let's just jump in, and I'm going to try to make my case. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, everyone say Uz. In the land of Uz, there, was, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. Now, you're going to have to know this. I, because this is the narrator speaking, and it, the point of view is omniscience, okay? If, any of you into, if you're into literature, this is omniscience. In other words, it's letting us know this is not just someone's opinion. This is the truth. Job is a good man. Now, I'm saying that because I have read more commentaries on this book than I've ever read on any series we've ever done, and it amazes me how the commentaries disagree with each other. 
There's, now, to which someone might say, well, do you think you have the final word today? I don't. I'm not going to pretend I do. I will just tell you this. One of the trains of thought that I've heard from a lot of people has been that Job did something to deserve what's about to happen to him. That Job is about, we're about to find out, Job is worse than the worst country song ever. He's going to lose everything. He's about to lose his dignity, his possessions, his children, his everything. He's going to lose his name. He's going to lose everything. And there's a line of thought that I've heard many people say now between interpreters and preachers, which goes something like this. Well, we're about to read, for example, right now, we're going to say in verse 4, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters and eat with them. And when there was a period of feasting, and we find out right before that he had seven sons and three daughters, seven times a year it says that when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now, I got to tell you, I, can, I get concerned about my kids. I never think to myself, oh my gosh, my, my teenager went out this way. They went out last night. Oh, I hope they did not blaspheme the Holy Spirit and curse God. I mean, there's things that you worry about. I hope they don't get a ticket. I hope they don't speed. I hope they don't, you know, there's a lot of, so I don't ever think to myself, I hope they don't curse God. Whatever was going on with them, we, we, we know from in verse uh, two, it says he had seven sons, three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Early in the morning though, down, back down here, it says he would go and he would make these sacrifices. Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was his regular custom. A lot of commentators and preachers have pointed to it throughout the years. His children probably, it seems like the evidence is, they're party animals. They would have at least seven times a year a feast where there's a lot of drinking going on that whatever's happening, we know two things about it. Number one, when it's done, Job is really worried that they did some seriously bad stuff. And number two, even though the whole family's invited, guess who's not invited to those parties? The guy who's the greatest, most pure man on all the earth. It's a good question, by the way. Who do you not invite to your parties? <laughs> it's, it's just an interesting thought. So some have pointed to that. They've pointed to the fact that what I already read to you, that Job, when he's suffering, his wife says, curse God and guy. Clearly, uh, she, she's not hyper-godly, and his children don't seem to be hyper-godly. And there's this obscure verse over in chapter 3 when we get into the poetry part of this, uh, by the way. And Job chapter 1 and 2 is prose. Job chapter 3 starts with, poetry. We're about to have a couple chapters of prose with a whole bunch of chapters of poetry, which is prone to all sorts of things. But in um, chapter 3, verse 25, he says, what I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. Now, a lot of people have used this kind of like the new age principle of attraction, like that which you fear is attracted to you. So many people have tried to use these, the, the, the fact of his wife and his kids and his fear that Job brought this on himself. What I just need you, I need some of you to understand this right from the jump right now. Job is the greatest man on the earth. Job is not suffering because of what he's done wrong. Job is suffering because of what he's done right. Now, some of you need to know that because when you are suffering, there are some of you that have suffered, and it's because you are gods. It is because you are favored. It is because you are righteous. It is because God's got a plan for your life. It is because you are the Lord's, you are Jesus's, you belong to the Holy Spirit. It is because God's hand is on your life. Satan has not come at you because you're so bad. He's come at you because you are gods. And some of you, when the accuser rises up against you, you start to doubt who you are because of the accusations that come. Job does not get attacked because he's sinful. He gets attacked because he's righteous. Some of you need to know that because that's the context of this story. There is not an ounce of evidence in the story of Job that Job was, by the way, we've got stuff Job didn't have. We've got the book of Job. We've got the Old Testament. We've got the prophets. We've got the Psalms. We've got the New Testament. How was Job supposed, well, if you fear, you're opening up a door for the devil. I mean, by the way, are there any of us in this room that have any imperfections in the way we've raised our kids been in marriage, or had fears in our life? Is there anyone in the room that's, if the greatest man on the earth was open to the attacks of the devil for having some doors open, it's, does everyone understand, I do not stand because of how perfectly I have left a hedge up in my life. I stand because of the grace of God himself. I've, I've literally, I've read some commentators and read and heard some sermons where I walked out like, oh my gosh, this is the worst news ever, this book of Job, because unless you're utterly perfect, you're dead meat. 
And that's not the good news of Jesus. And by the way, the, very, the, the early church, they say that the early church, the two books they read the most was the book of Job and the book of Revelation. Really interesting. I'll tell you what the book of Job is not trying to tell you. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You, you, if, you, if you open a door, if you didn't raise your kids right. So, so let's, let's just kind of, let's just, let's just make it real clear on the front end. Job's about to suffer big time. And when we suffer on this side, this is part of what Job is teaching us. Job is on the earth. He has no idea what we're about to read right now. Job has no clue about this other thing that's going on behind the scenes in verse 6 when it says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Now let's just get clear. Watch me now. When you are suffering on the earth, you will have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. There is a temptation to think all you know, the only thing you think is happening is it's you and God. In fact, you're going to read for many, many chapters, Job is about to assume that, that the enemy in his life is God because all he knows is what's on the earth and a God that he cannot see. What the book of Job is letting us reminded about is there is another reality other than just you and God. There is a devil. There actually is. There is an, there is an enemy. An enemy. Now, when you're going to read this book of Job and when someone is suffering and even when some of you are suffering, part of what Job is letting you know when we say, well, what is the reason for this? And here's the thing I need you to know. You have no idea. I've, I've heard so many of us torment ourselves that, oh, I knew I should have picked a different school. I knew I should have never gotten engaged to him. I knew I should have never gone to that place. I knew I should. There may be truth in all. What I'm letting you know is the nature of suffering that we find in Job is that God does not operate this universe and this world with karma. You're about to find out God is a God of grace. And if you're trying to find every imperfection in your life, you're going to torment yourself. That is not what's happening. Several years ago, I was out of the blue. I was losing my voice. Some of you were in the church. I was losing my voice. And I would preach three, four, five times a weekend. And I would lose my voice by like the end of the first sermon. And, and I was concerned I would never be able to speak or preach again. And I had to go in for surgery. And I had no clue why. Like, did not know why. And so there were plenty of people asking questions like, well, you do talk a lot. Do you think maybe God's trying to... How do you argue with that? What are you going to do? Argue with that? that that's true. You know, it's, I mean, it, when, if you do argue, well, you must, it must be pride. You know, it's like, so I would just like take it. I'd be like, man, you're right. You're right. It, it could be. The Lord's strike. And people would ask, do you think the Lord is striking you to teach you something? And I'm like, man, I'm just going to go memorize the verse. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Could I just... And, and there, there's a part of that. Now, here's the catch. I don't know because certainly if there's anyone in this room that deserves to be punished for using words wrongly, I'm letting you know, it is this guy. Guilty is charged, 100%. And if me going to heaven one day depends on my words, I am toast. Me going to heaven one day depends on someone else's words that said, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. That's how I'm standing. Now, here's the catch. We... I ended up having to go into a week getting ready, pre-op for surgery, and some of you are here when it happened. I go in for surgery, and I was completely, miraculously healed. Utterly healed. <laughs> I mean, it was like, the nurse is like, you've got, your vocal folds are like those of a baby. I'm like, thank you. She's like, they're beautiful, gorgeous. I'm like, thank you. No one's ever told me about my good-looking vocal folds. It was wonderful. Why did God heal me? And I'm like, I'm like, I, I'm not. So this week, so th this past week, I was on, on Monday, I was playing a bunch of sports and I did a bunch of stuff and I threw my back out like for about five straight hours. I, I was doing yard work. I was playing some volleyball with my kids. Um, I went to the gym, did a workout, and then I played pickleball after that. And at about, I don't know what time it was, 9.30 or something like that. I, I, and my back, I was like, oh, my back. I'm like, and I prayed to get healed and what happened with my throat didn't happen with my back especially instantly. I, w I wanted it instantly so I could get back in the game. <laughs> and I don't know why. What I'm trying to tell you is I don't know. Like there are things, I don't know. If, when someone tries to come and explain why one person got healed and why, I, I get it when someone's like, well, one person believed and one, one person's a believer and the other one's not. It's the same believer. I prayed the same, and I'm just letting you know, I didn't feel any different praying for my throat than I did for my back this week. And the results turned out somewhat differently. I'm not going to claim to fully understand all that. What I'm trying to let you know is there are things that we do not get. 
So when we come now to, to this passage, there is going to be this other reality that's happening that we see now that Job doesn't see. And it happens when Satan comes up. And then the Lord says in verse 8, now here is the verse of the book of Job that I think trips everybody up. This is the controversy right here in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have, and I'm going to say it slowly so you don't misapply this and misinterpret this. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now God is saying this about him. Verse 9, Job, does he fear God for nothing, Satan says? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand. Now Satan is trying to tell God, God, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, very well, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord one day when Job's sons and daughters. Now, it's interesting. This is when it happens again, which is some of the evidence that karma interpreters will do on this. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, because Job wasn't there, because Job was not invited a godly man was not going to be in this place, is, is some of the, the insinuation here. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now that's horrible. While he was still speaking, verse 16, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell down from heaven, burned up all the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them and, they, and their servants of the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came, and here's the stinker of them all. Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. Now, this is the great controversy. I'm going to dare you during the book of Job series to interpret the Bible with the Bible. I have often heard people read New Testament revelation about God and interpret the New Testament in light of the book of Job, where they will modify New Testament principles with this Old Testament principle of, yeah, but look how mean God was in Job. But, but I want to take you back, because when we go to verse 8, this, this controversial verse where the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? I have heard commentators and preachers and Christians alike say it like this. God goes up to Satan and makes a bet with him. He makes a wager. And I'm about to let you know, God is not using you as a wager against Satan. I, I just want to, I'm going to let you know that right now. Because some of us feel like pawns in the hand of God where he's just sort of trying to, to make a point. But, he, but Satan, the Bible says, Satan, he says, where have you come from? He says, I've been going to and fro. Now, it's important to know that because in 1 Peter 5.8, we have a New Testament, more enlightened version of what happens. Can you put 1 Peter 5, 8 up there for me? 1 Peter 5, 8, it says that the devil prowls around, and I need it up on the screen, 1 Peter 5, 8. The devil, it says, so be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or one version says, seeking whom he may devour. This is what the enemy does. Satan is the adversary, the accuser. He prowls throughout the earth and he's looking for people that he is able to devour. Now when he does, he comes back and when he's in the spot, God says to him, have you considered, this word considered, it's a compound Hebrew word. It's from this root sum, which means to set. He says, have you set your mind on Job? In other words, 
the one that initiated this was not God. The one that initiated this is Satan, who is the accuser, who's been roaming, who's been looking for places to attack. He comes back and he has his mind set on Job. This is not God out of the blue approaching Satan. God is not the one that initiates any of this. And guys, this is going to be so important to understand because when we're going through our trouble, we often call things acts of God that are not the acts of God. They're the acts of the devil. Now, someone might say, yeah, but God allowed it. See, but, but even then, I want you to see what's happening. He says, he's in your, Satan tries to tell God, God, strike him. God's like, no, no, I'm not going to strike him. He says, he, these things are in your hands. Now, this is where these sons and daughters that, by the way, are now, these are not little kids. These are grown sons and daughters of Job that probably have had a hedge around them since childhood. They're off on their own now. They're living their own way. And this is important because there's two people that get accused when we go through the trials that we go through. One person that gets accused is you. The other that gets accused is God. That God is unjust to do in people's lives what seems so unfair. The thing about you and me is you and me have no clue what's going on in the lives of other people. You and me have no idea what was going on in the lives and the hearts of Job's adult, grown, accountable children. Who have now reached a place where there is no hedge around them where Satan has been seeking whom he may devour, and he goes, and indeed, he does devour. Satan's the one that initiates this, to which he says, but, but God, does he fear you for nothing? Like, in other words, does Job serve you? I want to know, I, because, yeah, I've seen Job. Yeah, he's the most righteous guy there is. But here's the question. Does Job serve you because he loves you, or does Job serve you because it's good for him? Does Job serve you because you're beautiful or does Job serve you because you're useful? Now, friends, I want to make something really clear here. There is a truth to godliness. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness works. Here's the truth. If you tithe, you're going to be blessed. If you live righteously, you're going to be blessed. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things are going to get added onto you. The truth of the matter is there are principles of God's kingdom that you take Sabbaths, you rest, you enact the principles of the Bible, you speak truth, you obey the Ten Commandments. There is a reality to the fact that when you walk in the ways of God, there is a residual blessing that does, godliness does work until it doesn't. Because sometimes for a minute, you're going to have afflictions and trials that will cause you to wonder if it's working or not. And God hears from Satan, is Job serving you because he actually loves you or is he serving you because it's so good for him? See, everybody worships when it's easy. Everybody worships when the worship team is singing the song that you're like, oh my gosh, that's my jam. You're like, oh, oh my gosh, I heard that on the radio. That's my jam. But when they sing a song you don't like, the question is, is God worthy of worship even when the melody is not the melody you choose? Is God worthy of worship even when the sun is not shining down on you, even when your roof blew off? Is God as worthy of praise when the tree landed just to the side of your house after a hurricane as when the tree lands on your house? That is the question. And what Job is being accused of to God by Satan is this. He loves you because it's useful. That's why he does this. Everybody worships when there's immediate gratification. The question is, can you worship when you prayed for the test, you took the test, and you came one point shy of getting the scholarship, and you didn't get in? Because we sort of live in a world that on one hand, we, go up to, we love to go to weddings where people say, I will be with you for better or worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. But what we really mean is, I love you for better or better, and richer or richer, and, and healthier or healthier. But you bring in the worse, and we peace out. I mean, I mean guys, can we just get honest for a minute? Like, even this pandemic, even like, I've heard Christians say, Oh my gosh, all the political drama of the last six years, I'm done with this. You talk about a first world problem? We need to go visit some nations where the poverty, despair, and desperation of saints of God would blow your minds away. 
And they have not ever peaced out on you. People are like, well, I haven't peaced out on God. I've just peaced out on the church. You know, God has so identified himself with his people that when people persecuted the, the church, when they were persecuting Christians, Jesus said, why, oh, why, why, are, you, why are you persecuting me? See, when, here, here's the catch, friends. When, when you badmouth God's people, you're badmouthing Jesus himself because he's identified with us. Listen, I get it. The church is called the bride of Christ, and the church is jacked up. We are a jacked up people. Let me just give you a little advice, though. Never go up to someone, never go up to a husband and talk about how ugly his wife is to his face. I get it, man. We are, we are a load. People say Christians are loads of hypocrites. We are. That's why we are some of the best evidence of the grace of God. The very fact of our hypocrisy, and I don't want us to live in hypocrisy. I want us to hate our hypocrisy. But friends, hypocrisy is not just a religious thing. It's a human thing. All these Democrats, all these Republicans, all these libertarians, all these humanists. Friends, hypocrisy is, it's universal. It's all of us. See, everybody is into the, to the, the covenant when it's better. But I want you to see, this is not a wager. This is not God coming in. This is not God uh, using you to, to come make a point. This, this is what God does. God allows Satan to do as much as Satan can do to the point that it will not serve Satan's purposes. I'm going to say it again. When Satan comes against your life, yes, there are times that God will allow him to do things, but never for the purpose that he has wanted to do it. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Isaiah 54, where God says, yes, I made the blacksmith, but the blacksmith makes the weapons, and there's no weapon formed against you that shall... Let me say it again. Yeah, I did make the blacksmith, but the blacksmith makes the weapons, and I'm letting you know because of me in your life, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. I need little Fred Hammond in the background right now to make the points. Because what we get tempted to do is to see a weapon and say, oh, God did this to me. He's like, no, no, no. I made the blacksmith. Yes, I did create Satan. Yes, I did create the person that tormented you. Yes, but do not conflate what they have done with who I am. I'm going to say it again. When you're troubled with things you do not understand, hold tight to what you do. Mike, do you understand the nature of what happens when Satan says, God, strike him. And God's like, no, I won't strike him, but he's in your hands. In other words, yes, those children, they are in your hands. Yes, there are. he is the God of this age. Yes, there are ways that walls are broken down. Yes, there are ways that Satan, but do not call what God does the same thing as what Satan does, to which someone could say, yeah, but that's just an easy philosophical way of getting around it because if God allows it, it's the same thing is happening. We can, we'll get into that a little bit. What I need you seeing is don't act like we don't have the book of Job and don't act like we don't have the Bible that says you have an adversary and his name is not God his name is the devil see there's a similar assault that we have you know hey is Job just serving you because it's convenient take away the convenience and he'll stop serving I've heard this I'm sure some of you have heard this you know yeah, yeah, you follow Jesus, but it's because you were born in a country of Christians. Yeah, it's because you were born into a Christian home. Yeah, it's because it, it like, like I've, you know, I've heard people say, oh, it's, it's a white man's religion. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's like, it's a white man's religion? The only place in the world where Christianity is not growing is white lands. The only places Christianity is growing is black Africa and yellow Asia and brown worlds and South America, like literally go to all the, whenever someone says this is a, a and, and there's these accusations that you'll hear, which is someone's following God for these kind of reasons, but it's never been tested. And what trials do is they have a way of testing to see the genuineness of our faith. We see a world right now where humanities class 101, freshman year at Santa Fe College, you'll have a professor that gets up and, and says, have you considered the problem of pain? Because how can a loving God allow so much evil in the world? And people say, oh my gosh, I'm, I think I'm done. The question is, because this is going to happen, when you get tested, and this is where the Bible is very honest, you will. When you are tested, are you following Jesus and serving God because he's beautiful or because he's useful? Because there will come a moment when the usefulness of God does not seem clear 
And I'm about to try to make a point right now that when you cannot hear his voice and you cannot see his eyes, that this God is so true and so good and so pure and so for you that if you knew how it really was, you would serve him forevermore. So he loses everything. He loses his children. He loses his health. He loses his dignity. And, and yet we come to verse 20, and it's like Job got up, tore his clothes, shaved his head, fell down to the ground. You're expecting him to flick God off. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. By the way, there is something applicationally wonderful about in the middle of your pain, just saying, Jesus, I bless you. God, I do not understand. I do not get it, but I praise the name of the Lord. I bless the name of the Lord. I bless the name of the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. I'm telling you, there is something glorious about someone, not because they're feeling it here, but because they know it here. God is worthy and he's good. It's like, I mean, not to use Dr. Seuss as my illustration, but if you've ever watched the movie, The Grinch That Stole Christmas, and the Grinch is convinced that, that the Whoville, all the Whoville people that can take all the presents away, and they're all going to become little punks. But if you ever watched the prophetic movie, it's this beautiful picture of when he looks down, he's surprised because the Whoville people are actually still thankful and joyful. And he's like, what? How could Christmas be good without presents? What? How, how could he be praising without possessions? I find it interesting because next week we're going to get into the the friends of Job that are giving us all of this advice, you know, and all this counsel. And for example, in, in Job 5:17, this first friend, he says, blessed is the one whom, the Lord, whom God corrects. So do not despise the, the discipline of the Almighty. What a fascinating, what a fascinating accusation for two reasons. Number one, because this gets quoted in the New Testament as true. You're going to find this. We're going we'll to get, get to this. The, the book of Hebrews actually says this exact thing. Don't despise the discipline and the chastening of the Lord. But the second thing we find out is at the end of this book, at the very end, Job is talking to God and God rebukes. Actually, he, actually, he speaks to, to Eliphaz. He says, um, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. He's like, you're dead meat. So these three friends, they're going to they're going to kind of tell him, man, you're getting what you deserve. Yeah, you're not such a good guy. You're, you're going to find out you don't want to do this because at the end of it, God is going to meet this friend and say, yo, you're dead meat unless Job prays for you. You don't speak the truth about me, which is fast. It's a wild thing because the book of Job, if you look in your little margins, if you have this kind of Bible, there are so many verses in the book of Job that get quoted in the New Testament, meaning it's possible to speak factual theology and you're still not speaking the truth about God. This is why Paul would say, speak the truth in. See, if you get the facts about God, but you don't get the nature of God, you have not gotten the truth about God. It, it, this, is such a wild, it, this is such a wild thing. Beware of taking verses from Job and overwriting the truth. I, I love this. I'm telling you, I love this passage, because I'm here to tell you today, you do have an adversary. You are going to read for 30-something chapters where Job is going to say, God, why are you my adversary? In fact, he's going to ask at some point, God, if it's not you doing this, who? That's what he's going to say. God, if not you, who? Now, Job doesn't have the book of Job, so Job doesn't know what we know from the book of Job, which is, yes, Job, you do have an adversary, but his name is not Yahweh. His name is not God. Yes, you do have an adversary. His name is not Jesus. His name is not the Father. His name is not the Holy Spirit. His name is the adversary. The name Satan means adversary. You have an adversary. And I'm not trying to like make much of him. I want to make much of Jesus. What I need you to understand, though, is this. When you're reading the book of Job, and I keep hearing people say this. I've heard people, women that got pregnant say, oh, why did God do this to me? 
I've heard people that got a disease said, why did God do this to me? I've heard people that got an accident. God, why did you do this to me? People that got hurt in a hurricane. God, why did you do It's amazing how quickly we jump to which I just want to say to you. Do you understand that there is another being on the field speaking in ways that we hear him to accuse you and God? And I want you to know you are more important than you know because you're made in God's image. But I need you to know he is better than you've imagined. In the same way that, that Satan accuses you before God, he accuses God before you. And I'm here to tell you today, I want the accuser to lose his sting in our eyes today. You could say, but is God my adversary? No, God is your shepherd. The Lord is your fortress. The Lord is your helper. The Lord is your savior. The Lord is your redeemer. The Lord is your comforter. The Lord is your shelter. The Lord is your everything, not your adversary. I'm going to say it again. Jesus is not your adversary. Let me read you a, a little quote from, from Bill Johnson. You know, Bill Johnson is a big faith healer, preacher guy, and has preached for healing. And, and they've seen so many healings at their church. I went out and visited this church, and I saw there was a, there was a, a person from USC. There was a, a statistician and a researcher from the University of Southern California that had heard all the healings that were happening at this church. So they went there and she wanted to document it because she's like, all right, I got to check this stuff out for myself. And sure enough, she's the first person I met there. She's like, yep, I got to tell you, I cannot explain all the healings that are taking place. Now, this is a church and this is a man that has experienced all kinds of healings and he's prayed for that. And yet just recently, his wife passed away from cancer. The Sunday after this happened, he got up to preach, and here was his opening line. The backslider in heart will always judge God by what he didn't do. But those who run with tenderness for who he is will always define him by what he said, what he promised, and what he has done. I have seen too much of his kindness to think he is anything other than absolutely good. What I have found is that there are measures of his presence that you can only find in the valley of the shadow of death. He's not a vending machine. I don't get to put a quarter in and get out of it what I want. It's a relational journey. I've experienced his kindness, his miracles at a level I could never earn or deserve. I don't have the right to reevaluate what he's like because I've experienced loss. It doesn't work that way. It almost sounds contradictory to honor him as healer when you've just lost someone that you love through a disease. But it's not fake hype. This is who he is. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning will either take you to the comforter, the presence of the Holy Spirit, or it will take you to unbelief but the choice is yours. And as for me and my house, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I choose to be comforted by him. As for me and my house, when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, blessed be the name of the Lord. When I'm walking through the, the questions of of misunderstanding and things that I don't get, and I'm, I'm so tempted to say, God, but yeah, you could have stopped this. That sounds a lot like, wait, God, I think you're my adversary. When I reach, watch, when I'm troubled with things I do not understand, I've got to hold tight to what I do. Mike, prove this to me. Let me just prove it to you. If you're going to interpret this, it's amazing how many commentaries I read that never gave us the New Testament commentary in the book of Job. There's one verse in the New Testament that interprets the book of Job for us, at least at an applicational level, it's James chapter five, it says this. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered, and you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Man, I'm gonna say it again. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Jehová, lleno de compasión y misericordia. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Mike, why are you telling me this? Because according to James, whatever you're supposed to be getting out of reading the book of Job, you're supposed to come out and say, oh my God, you are full of compassion and mercy. And yet I talk to so many people that when I ask them about their life, they're like, well, you know, the book of Job kind of tells us God's kind of cruel. There's this harsh 
side to God. Friends, if you read the book of Job and you don't walk out saying the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, you have not read the book of Job the way it's meant to be read. In other words, you've done bad exegesis and bad hermeneutics because the right exegesis, the right hermeneutics, the right interpretation is going to get you to the place where you understand you have an adversary, there are mysteries that you do not understand, but when you are faced with things that you do not understand, you hold tight to what you do understand. And what I do understand is this, God is good. This is why when he says, listen, you friends, you guys are in trouble. You have not spoken the truth about me as Job has. Well, how did Job speak the truth? I'll tell you how Job did. You talk about a wild verse. Listen to Job 19, 25. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God mind-blowing emoji right now. How does Job, without the book of Job, without the Bible, without the Old Testament, without Jesus, how does he get that? And I'll tell you how. Because this man doesn't love God because he's useful. He loves God because God's beautiful. And Job got it. He loves God because God's good. And Job felt that. He loves God because God is that ultimate truth. And somehow Job got this intimacy with God that let him know this. See, you don't serve a tyrant unconditionally. You only serve good people unconditionally. And Job's like, man, I don't even get it all. It feels like God's the one slaying me. I mean, we, we quote these things as if they're New Testament revelation. Though he slay me, yet will I. It's not God that was slaying him. It was his adversary that was slaying him. Mike, why do the good suffer? I, I, I don't really know, but I can tell you two things. Number one, God is going to do what is right. And number two, God is going to do what is love. I keep talking to people and I'm like, man, you're going through stuff. And they're like, yeah, I'm just a Job. I'm like, wait, you're, you're just a Job. You realize that's a good thing. Like Job's the example of this is going to turn out for good. Like, no, I'm, like, I'll hear people, yeah, I'm just a Job. I'm one of those people that nothing good ever happens. Commentators tell us this Job, he lives 175 to 250 years, something like that. His period of trial, commentators tell us, lasted between, somewhere between four weeks and nine months max. Out of a life of 200 years, he's got a trial that lasts for, let's call it a, a nine-month stint. When, when I hear people, yeah, I'm just, I'm just one of those people that I'm just a Job, Friends, before this series is over, we're going to make clear, we do not believe in a prosperity gospel that says that you'll never suffer. In this world, you will have trials. But I got to tell you this, be of good cheer, because you've got a Savior and a Redeemer who lives, and He redeems you out of all those trials. That is what He's going to do. That is how He works. That's who He is. Mike, how, how do I apply this sermon? To, it's like this. Don't read the book of Job without the cross. And don't read your sufferings without the gospel. I'm going to say it again. Don't even try to... I, I, when I hear people using the wrong interpretation of the book of... They're, they're using Job to interpret Jesus. You need to use Jesus to interpret Job. I want you to run your trials through... You're like, Mike, I don't get it. Jesus came to correct us. In John 10.10, 10, he says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I come to give life and give it to the fullest. When I hear people say, yeah, I've been, man, I've been getting stolen from it, but you know, God steals. No, that's, God's not the one who steals. Well, the, the Lord kills. The, the, the Lord, the, it's, just the, it's just God. No, no, what Jesus said is, listen, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come to give what? Life. I want to declare to somebody, life. Mike, can you explain my trials? I cannot. I can tell you this, when I am struggling and tormented with things I do not understand, I must hold on to what I do understand. I've got to stop deleting and, 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 and whiting out John 10.10 10 when I'm reading the book of Job. I need to make sure Job is going through the lenses of John 10.10. 10. I need to make sure Job is going through the lenses of James 5.11. I need to be reading into the text what's actually there. Because at the end of the day, the question really comes down to, yes, there are mysteries. There are things we don't understand. But the points of the, the point of the promises of God, the point of God revealing his nature is that so when my life has troubles, when I'm confused, when I'm being tormented, I come to the rock that is higher than I. The cross is my antidote. 
Satan accuses and goes to God and says, God, Job doesn't love you. Because that's who Satan is. He's an accuser. And by the way, that's a card he's been playing forever. Because in the Garden of Eden, he goes to Adam and Eve and he says, Adam, Eve, God doesn't love you. He's holding back on you. He said to some of you this week, God doesn't love you. How could you be going through a divorce? How could you be going through this trial? Why could this happen to your kids? How come you haven't been healed yet? Other people have, but you have. God is, see, he is the ultimate accuser. And there's only one thing strong enough <laughs> to shake you out of his very effective accusations. And it's the good news of Jesus himself. I, I end it like this. On February 15th, 1921, in New York City, in the operating room of Kane Summit Hospital, there was a doctor performing an appendectomy. In many ways, it was an uneventful day. There was a patient complained of severe abdominal pain. The diagnosis was clear. It was an inflamed appendix. Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane was performing the surgery. In his 37 years of distinguished work and practice, he had done almost 4,000 appendectomies. So this should have been an eventful thing except for two interesting facts. The first was the use of local anesthesia in a major surgery. He was a crusader for the use of local anesthesia because general anesthesia had just as, as a lot of bad, worse effects. Many agreed to this in theory, but only apply it in practice if they could see it work, and they had not seen it work. So Dr. Kane searched for a volunteer, which was difficult to do. Eventually, he found a candidate. It was Tuesday morning. The historic operation proceeded. The patient was prepped, wheeled into the OR. Local anesthetic was applied. And just as he'd done thousands of times before, he dissected the superficial tissue, locates the appendix, skillfully excised what needed to be excised, performs the surgery. And during the procedure, the patient complained only of minor discomfort, but the volunteer was taken to post-op, quickly recovered, was dismissed in two days. The theory was proven. The two things that made the surgery unique were number one, what I already told you, the use of local anesthesia, but number two, the courageous candidate that Dr. Kane found was Dr. Kane himself. The message of the gospel is the message that Jesus is the doctor who became a patient to convince the patients that you can trust the doctor. When I don't understand why I'm suffering, God, why? Jesus is the doctor who became a patient and he goes on a cross to convince the patients who deserve the cross that they can trust a doctor who's on the cross that would say, why, oh, why have I been forsaken? When you do not understand your suffering, you've got a God who is good. And when you say, I need proof, to which he says the proof is on a bloody cross in an empty tomb. You can trust the doctor. Church, when you leave today and you suffer this week, I want you to run it through the cross and believe in your good God and bless his holy name. But for the rest of our eternal lives, let's say, as for me and my house, we trust the goodness of this king. As for me and my house, we trust the reliability and the faithfulness and the fidelity of this king. And if by chance, you are in a valley right now. I want you to know that you've got a doctor who comes to meet with the patients because he gets you and feels you like no one else can.